0: Hi, I am Andrea, and this is Empowered by Darkness, a podcast for anyone seeking to dive deep into all parts of themselves, especially the darker ones, to become empowered by the integration of these into uncovering your unique expression and purpose. Here we shed light on the self hatred, the resentment, the need for validation and saving, the fear of being loved, the illusion of power and damaging patterns, and many more topics that will challenge you to bloom wherever you are currently planted. Welcome to your life's work. Take a seat and let's get started. This is going to be a very exciting episode Because if you have been wondering who the person behind these segments is, this episode will introduce you to her, introduce you to my journey, and what has led me to sit in front of this microphone and record about my life and topics that are very personal to my journey and that are deep. And a lot of the times get pretty gritty into details that aren't readily shared nowadays and in platforms like this one so I really wanted you to get to know the person behind these recordings and know why she has decided to delve into these topics so without further ado I wanted to introduce the topic of memory to begin with because whenever we recall our lives up to this point that we're in uh, memory plays a very big part in that how do we come upon these recollections and in my journey I have to be honest with all of you I do not have very vivid or specific recollections of my childhood or even my early teens young adulthood years because If you have never heard this concept before, trauma and memory have a very significant relationship and what I mean by this is that if you experience something that is particularly painful or disturbing, the brain has the power to decide that it does not wish to relive that occurrence and it may lock away that memory from your consciousness. So, the brain can suppress memories. And up until the year 2015, we didn't really know how this occurred. But I conducted some research before recording this podcast because I myself, knowing that I have suppressed memories that other people in my family do have, that we shared living situations that I don't recall the details of, but they recall them. And for me, it was—it has always been of interest to see why I have decided, not consciously, because I didn't make it my decision to not recall these memories. But my brain has, in some form, not done so. So I have—I have really become interested in studying why this happens, and perhaps you find yourself in a situation in which you have experienced you know that you have experienced traumatic events in your childhood or, or later on in your life, and you do not recall the specifics of, and but you are sure, you feel in your body that you have experienced these events, this might be of interest to you. So until 2015, um, scientists actually conducted a study to find why this is so why is there a correlation between trauma and memory and they discovered what they call memory subpaths that are in the brain and that can only be activated in a fear response so when you are experiencing an event that's particularly stressful and distressing these subpaths in your brain are activated so what what these subpaths are They're a chain of communication cells, brain cells that send information about your lived experiences. So when you experience something that causes you great fear, this affects receptors that are in these cells. So the receptors, instead of following the traditional memory pathway in your brain, what they end up doing is they take a different road than other memories that you store in your brain. So they naturally arrive at a different destination. So this destination that they arrive in is where they become locked away. And here is the important detail. They're locked away, but that doesn't mean that they cease to exist. So these memories are still there, but they can only be accessed by the same receptors that became activated when you experience this emotionally distressing experience. So when these same receptors become activated, again, they can reach this information that was stored away. This is why it's believed that when a person is unable to retrieve these memories and they, they are placed in a situation in which they experience the emotions of the trauma that placed them in, in the situation to begin with, in which they locked away um, recollections. When they are placed in a situation similar to that again, they, are, they have the ability to recall the suppressed memories because the receptors are activated again. And they are able to do their job of accessing the memories and bringing it to your consciousness. I, ro- I really wanted to share that because of two reasons. One, because I think it's fascinating to see the way that our brain functions as a protection mechanism. I really want to stress that this alternative pathway that exists in our um, brain cells is a way to protect us from the experience that we are undergoing that is very distressing and difficult to process in of itself when we're in it. So something has to occur for us to be able to continue going on about our days and our lives when we are in these distressing situations. And the brain functions as a form of protection in this, in this instance, in which it shields us from continuing to experience the distressing emotions born from the trauma that's going on, and we are able to continue going about our lives. Obviously, it becomes very difficult when we're older and we are trying to recall what happened in our lives that made us the way that we are. And this is the second reason why I think knowing this is important because it rids us of that feeling of perhaps being guilty that we don't recall the same things others that experienced the trauma with us recall. And this doesn't mean that we made a conscious effort to suppress those things. It simply means that in the moment that we were experiencing the the, the trauma, it was so intense that our only way of being able to continue going on was for our brain to step in and do something about it. And I really wanted to also introduce the term dissociative amnesia, which if this is your first time hearing it, it, it is a, a condition in which you have memory gaps from your upbringing. So this means that you most likely blocked away certain events due to stress and and trauma. And myself, you know, though I haven't been formally diagnosed with this condition of dissociative amnesia, knowing that it exists, I have spoken about it to the therapist that I'm currently seeing, and the therapist has not diagnosed me with it, but very much what the therapist did was validate the fact that what I have experienced until now falls into a condition like dissociative amnesia. And what this means is that I don't recall much about interactions with the primary abuser in my narrative, which was my dad. Um, so I still have memories with my entire family and and really the particulars of where I have those those memory gaps are tied to my father so this kind of amnesia occurs in that sense like you have very specific gaps tied to the abuser or the situation that directly made you feel threatened so if you're new to this term I would encourage you to research it and see if it might be applicable to your narrative and Just wanted to quickly say that this type of amnesia has three different categories. There is the localized, generalized, and fugue. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that last one correctly. But um, the one that I think I might fall into is that of localized. And this means that memory loss affects specific parts of my life, such as certain periods in childhood or, or anything related to pivotal figures in your life that, that shifted your your existence in a significant way. like a friend, a coworker, um, an uncle, uh, you name it. So the memory loss in this instance focuses on a very specific um, trauma. So with this type of amnesia, memories can return suddenly and they can return fully. Um, but they're usually triggered by something in the person's surroundings or during therapy. Therapy like EMDR, just eye movement desensitization, which is very popular in, in instances of individuals that have dissociated and in, in traumatic um, occurrences in their lives. And they undergo this type of therapy that is connected to their bodies to be able to recall memories that have been suppressed so a person really is at risk of developing this type of amnesia both from physical childhood trauma but also emotional and psychological so if, if the individual experiences as well a family member or a loved one that's abused and they don't experience that abuse directly themselves they can also experience this type of amnesia Um, because they are still experiencing the abuse within the close circle of, of their family and loved ones. So it doesn't have to happen directly to them. And this dissociation is a protective mechanism and it's not voluntary. So having once used dissociation as a form of protection in childhood, you can use it again in adulthood when you feel threatened. It is not Exclusive to childhood. So having introduced that in the beginning of this episode, I really wanted to delve in into my upbringing and share the memories that I do have and and just more about my personality and just details that I hope will help you understand where I come from and also where I am going with this podcast and my, my goals for, for future episodes. So I grew up a sensitive child. So from a young age, I would say that I was more aware than my peers of my surroundings. So the people in my life, without realizing it most times, I was making judgments of the personalities of the people that I stumbled upon. what I mean by this I'll share a quick example. I remember that I had a teacher in fifth grade that would yell at the class whenever we couldn't keep our voices down. So in that instance that she would do that, instead of feeling resentful toward her or simply taking the situation at face value, I remember that I would tell my mom that Miss E, the teacher that I had at the time, was having a very difficult time because the class didn't realize how difficult it was to manage a class while having a newborn at home. And at the time my teacher had shared with all of us that she was a new mom and she was juggling different responsibilities and she felt stressed most of the time. And I tucked away that detail that she shared about her persona in my mind at that age, at the age of of 10. And I used it to form a more complete judgment of her. And the way that she would sometimes lash out, I wouldn't take it personally. But I I knew even at that age that there was something deeper going on. And I recall when I was that young, you know, following Miss E around with my gaze in class. And I would follow her to her desk after every instance of, of her yelling to just stare at her facial facial expression. I would just be called to look at her. And I don't know why I felt that. But often, I would see her sadness and I would notice how defeated she looked. And growing up, I, I did a lot of this. The same dynamic at home, too. I would notice facial expressions. I would noticed changes in tone when speaking and I made judgments about how the person was feeling in that moment based on on these changes in their facial expressions and their tone of voice so I was very in tune with all of those things and I guess you could say that I was also uh, insightful at that age and maybe even empathetic and obviously having qualities like this of sensitivity are twofold so as as a sensitive child i was also very easily overwhelmed because i constantly absorbed more than i could handle so i wasn't a very social child i was often seen as shy and quiet and through time i actually adopted these perceptions of myself and i didn't question them because i felt good being alone i felt like i needed a lot of alone time and i see now that it was partly because i was very empathetic and i i feel like i still am so i absorbed a lot of the emotions of those around me and and the the words that they would use the tone of voice they would they would employ and So this descriptor of me that others shared of being shy and reserved just kind of stuck with me through time. So I grew up with strict parents that I like to say were operating through a survival mode due to the nature of how they grew up and also because they were immigrants. I came to the United States when I was three years old. I came from Mexico and... I settled here with my parents and they were working factory jobs at the time. I think a lot of the times the extent and the way in which mothers and fathers are engaged in their children's lives is partly determined by where they live with their children, their relationship status um, with the other parent. It's determined by their employment, by their economic and education status, and it's it's obviously also influenced by the way that they were raised themselves and their families. I list those things because I think it's important, and it was important for me writing this episode, to really look at those aspects of my parents' lives and and describe them according to, to that complexity of, of the way that they came about to be the people that they are. So... I lived in, in Compton, um, we rented the back part of a house when I was younger, so we had a very small space growing up. I have never had my own room, I have always lived very much in, in like a two bedroom home, and when I say two bedroom, my family was five, five individuals and one of the bedrooms was a living room slash a bedroom. And also a dining room. So we had a very very limited space and both of my parents were in factory jobs that were low paying so minimum wage. Both of my parents did not finish elementary school so they didn't really have a a very long education. Both of my parents were also given the task early on in their lives to support their families economically and both were raised with their own share of dysfunctional family dynamics. My, my dad's father, my grandpa, he was killed when he was a young boy. So his, when my dad was a young boy, his father was killed. So his mother, my dad's mother, um, was forced to take on a stricter, more firm approach to raising her children. And my mom's dad, was very strict, and there was constantly friction in in the relationship he had with my mom's mother, my grandma. They didn't really show affection to each other, and my grandma constantly defended showing unconditional respect for her husband, despite there being ill treatment in the home of my, my grandpa towards his children and towards his wife. There was very much that mentality that the male in the household had the last say and was right, regardless of what was felt in the home. So there was also a very strong cultural influence for me growing up. Um, I actually actually looked into this because Latino fathers, I don't know if you knew this, but 64% of Latino fathers here in the United States, are immigrants and the majority of these men are low income and they don't speak fluent English and they have low levels of education. So many, like my father, they come to the U.S. still very much influenced by what they call uh, cultural machismo. So it's this strong sense of masculine pride. And I saw this in my dad growing up. I saw him constantly embodying that he knew what was best that he had the final word, that he was the head of the household, even if economically he was earning less than my mom. And I also saw the very dark aspect of machismo, which he, my dad spoke lowly about women. He constantly demanded things from my mom, believing that as her husband, but most importantly as a man, he was entitled to them. He was entitled to her cooking, to her washing clothes, to her giving him receipts of what she spent her money on, and he demanded intimacy whenever he desired it. So something that is also in in our community less spoken about when we talk about machismo is the fact that by the nature of, of this masculine pride, emotional expression is equated with weakness, And growing up, it was clear to me that my dad really bashed emotional display. And his way of being strict was very different from my mom's way of being strict in the sense that he was very controlling of my mom's finances. He initiated fights due to money. He didn't care about my family's stability um, because he would waste the earnings that my mom had, the savings that she had for the household. However, he saw fit for himself. He didn't really have that mentality of being a team with my my brothers and my mom and, and him. So if things in the house did not align with my dad's prerogative of what was acceptable, he would not allow them. So an example of this is I... Recall when I was younger, my mom, she took my siblings and I out to eat at the park. And at the time she had bought pizza and we went out to eat, she did not consult the fact that we went out with my dad. And I remember him showing up to the park and yelling at her about her decision to spend money on food that evening because he deemed that it was unacceptable, that the savings that they had, which were at the time shared, were not supposed to go to spending money that evening on buying food from a restaurant. And um, that, for me, like, really solidified the fact that my dad was the one that always had the last say on things, and things that for me didn't seem unacceptable or worthy of of being raised in as problems in a conversation and really at the time blown out of proportion for what they were those things were very impactful at the age that they happened because I didn't think that my brothers and my mom and I sharing that moment at the park was something that deserved yells in public and and an argument, an argument being raised in public. So my mom was strict growing up in the sense that she wanted us to do well in school, and she wanted us to surround ourselves with people that also had a desire for for taking school seriously and, and growing through school. And I think this was mainly based on the fact that my mom grew up being told that education was a pathway for upward mobility and a lot of immigrant parents have that mentality too and education was really sold to her as this avenue for not ending up in a factory job because she experienced very difficult health setbacks from being in a factory job and and she knew this firsthand that that this was not a sustainable job and especially not sustainable for her health but more so, it was not sustainable for living a a happy life because a lot of the times her the effect that the job had on her emotionally really took a bigger toll than physically um, due to the abuse that a lot of workers suffered in in those factory conditions. And I have like my one core memory that I have that is that reaches further back when I was younger has to do with the dynamic between my parents. Up until now, I've been describing them sort of separately. But the memory that I have that is quite detailed from from seeing them in, interact as a couple goes back to fifth grade as well when I was 10. And, and this memory, I talk about it in the book that I published, um, talking about my life. But in the memory, my dad ends up finding birth control pills that my mom is keeping in her drawer and he becomes upset because to him this finding this signifies that she's still expecting for them to have an intimate connection and at that time their marriage was already fractured and they were together only as companions in a way like there was not a romantic aspect to their relationship anymore so when he found these these pills to him it signified that my mom was still holding out expectation for the relationship to turn romantic again and that was very upsetting to him and he was again taking things very much out of the proportion that they were in and yelling and and saying very degrading things about my mom saying that she was and I probably can't say these on the podcast because they're very degrading terms towards women, Um, but to sum it up, he was saying that she wouldn't be anything without him and that she would fail in life if he wasn't by her side. And he was calling her pretty much all of the words that you can think about that can be offensive to a woman's integrity. And he was saying all of these things in front of me while I was getting ready to go to school. So, this for me introduced really what would be years after that a constant verbal struggle with with my dad constant constant verbal outbursts that intensified with time he was he was an unloving parent and he was very much disinterested in in our lives He didn't really have presence in what mattered to my brothers and I or what mattered to my mom. Um, He didn't go to school functions. He wasn't present in family gatherings or, or achievements that we would grow to be proud of. And when he was present physically, he wasn't there mentally or emotionally. And he used foul language towards my mom. He threatened to kill her multiple times if... If she left him, he threatened my siblings if they defended my mom and in general he was very invalidating of any verbal defenses that we would give uh, my siblings and I of, of my mother because the aggression was directly um, toward her a lot of the a lot of the times it would only be turned towards us when we would be in that in that ener- energy of trying to defend my mother or or just de-escalate the, the conflict. So when we would try to do that, he was invalidating of, of that response and he would make us feel stupid and, and powerless. So he would, as I see it now, he would gaslit our defenses, making us feel like we were exaggerating or blowing the situation out of proportion, like the many times he would do. And he would, that we were offending him too. Many times he said, you're offending your father when you should be respecting me. So he felt that, that he was owed that respect, even though he wasn't giving it to, to us and to my mother. So in the household, there was constant fear for many years. And we were walking on eggshells all of the time, monitoring our actions in his presence, almost pleading, and I would do this a lot, almost plead to my mom not to rock the boat with her. With her responses to a verbal outburst. Because there was always that uncertainty of what mood my dad was in. What would be his mood this time? I would, I would think. How would he respond to this? How would he respond to this situation if we are out in public? Which was another dimension of the abuse that that really for me solidified the idea that. I was I wanted like my family to be saved from him and from this just this energy this figure in our lives that was consuming all of the air from our from our surroundings and we felt suffocated in in the presence of him so my brothers and I began to catastrophize what could what could be the worst possible scenario when we were at school I remember being at school and thinking that while my mom was at home with my father he could easily kill her he could easily hurt her and our nervous system as I see it now was so affected by this situation and we were constantly on high alert and to this day having him being out of my life my dad having him being out of my life for for over five years my nervous system is still out of whack in that in that, um, in that way I'm still on high alert. Whenever things are going well in my life and there is an immediate stress, I cannot be at at peace. I'm still on high alert. I still feel tension on my shoulders, on my neck, feeling like something bad is going to happen. And another thing that really affected us at the time was disassociation. We were we were disassociating from what was happening, from the outbursts when they became very frequent. And it became a way for us to cope because we were able to step outside of the situation and and feel some semblance of safety. Even though it wasn't real safety, we were still in the situation. So the dissociation, it's kind of protecting us at the time or we feel that it's protecting us because we are... and, And what I mean by dissociation is you know, a verbal outburst is taking place and, and we're looking at our hands or we're staring at our feet and we are tuning out the screams, tuning out the insults. And honestly, I don't even recall what I would think about while I was tuning these things out. That's that's the essence of disassociating. You don't know what your where your mind is going, but it's not going where you currently are. So you're separating yourself. You're separating your awareness from the trauma. But as you might have inferred by now, you know, when you do this, this in, in the moment, it sparks confusion in the future because you start experiencing very intense emotions like anger, which I'm sure my brothers experienced a lot of um, in the years after my dad left. Or you start experiencing very intense grief and sadness and frustration and you don't know where these emotions are coming from or how to navigate them. Because you disassociated from the events when they were occurring that caused those emotions. So if you think about it, you know, this is, it's only natural that we did that, that we dissociated because of where we were coming from and and the people that we were surrounded with at the time. But it has a direct impact on how we show up later on in our lives. So I really wanted to touch upon that because it ties back to that issue of of memory and and having events be so impactful that there's no way for you to really go through them without trying to block them out or ignore them to some extent and one of the main ways that I blocked out these events after my dad left but also while he was still in the household was achievement achievement and education and And I really used that achievement as a coping mechanism. I saw that it brought joy to my mom when when my dad was still here and because she saw that we were having that upward mobility that she worked so hard to attain. Like many immigrant children, I felt like I owed progress to all of her sacrifices. So both her economic sacrifices, but most importantly, I felt like I owed progress to all that she was enduring with my dad. And I felt like I, at the time, I felt like I had an element of responsibility for what she was going through. When my dad had those outbursts, many times I thought I had done something wrong. Like many children that experience that type of abuse when they're young, it's natural to make it about yourself and to think that you have done something that has merited those screams and those insults and that hostility, but a lot of the times it's and really all the time it's it's not you it's the person that is producing uh, the trauma and and the direct impact on how you view yourself in that moment so I think in the, in the talking about achievement, I think there was also an element of wanting to bring a good thing to my mom's life after what she was going through with my dad. I felt a sense of control as well through doing well in my, my academics. I think it was important for me to have something that I felt like I could control at the time since everything felt out of my, my reach, out of my my control when, when my father was at home and and he was unpredictable. So at school, things were very much predictable up to the extent that I worked for them. And I overexerted myself to, in my academics, to be able to keep that predictability and, and that sense of, of control. So, mind you, at this time, I was still going to schools in Compton. I pretty much went to schools there until middle school. And when I was in middle school, I really got that sense that teachers that were watching my progression in, in academics were presenting the opportunity to get out of the community of Compton as a way that was more direct to to attain upward mobility. So when I was in middle school, I constantly had like recruiters that would come and and talk about schools like high schools that were outside of the city and that would get me into a better college and give me more opportunities to attain a good job um so there was this identity that I was building at the time that was more harmful than not um because it it became an identity of of being in constant achievement mode and and success mode that when I wasn't in it I couldn't comprehend how I was worthy without it because it just became like a, like a, one of those, like when you're stranded at sea and, and someone gives you, not stranded at sea, when you're like drowning and someone gives you one of those floating devices that helps you stay um below, above the surface it became education and achievement became that for me at the time. It became what I grasped onto to stay above the surface and, and comprehend how I had any semblance of worthiness in the, in the situation that I was in. So when I was an undergrad and I got accepted to a very good school, a very good undergraduate institution, There was a collapse of the identity that I had built when I was accused of academic dishonesty. If you're not familiar with that term, what it basically means is that I had plagiarized somebody else's words in something that I'd written that was important. It was a final paper for one of my classes. I'd plagiarized unknowingly, but I'd still done it. I used somebody else's words after planning my essay and really I did not quote the person. So when the teacher read it and they figured out that it wasn't my thought process and it was somebody else's, it was reported to the institution and I really thought that I was going to be expelled. Um, it's taken super seriously in academia. so. I remember getting a letter at the time when I was home. It was after the pandemic and I had had to come back home to finish my undergrad degree. I got a letter saying that I I had to retake the course and there was the risk that I was currently in probation and I, there was the risk that if I did it again or if I failed the course, I would get expelled. So I was I was very scared. I shared this with my mom. I didn't want to share it, but I shared it with her because if I got expelled, it had a direct impact on what I was going to be doing for the rest of my my year, basically living with her. I was I was living with her at the time, so she had to know what was going on if I wasn't going to classes for the rest of the year. So when I shared it, I felt this immense sense of guilt and shame, and it was just heavily, heavily magnified when it happened it was something serious i won't take away from how serious it was but the way that i magnified it in my brain it was it was just taken way out of the proportion that it was in i made it a direct statement about my worth and i didn't separate the fact that this was an academic pitfall from it being a personal pitfall in which It said everything about me being a failure, me being inadequate, and worthless. Um, If I'm being completely frank, those were the words that I used to describe myself. And this worthlessness came from all of these insecurities that I'd buried within myself that had finally caught up to me. I had used somebody else's words in this essay that I wrote because I didn't think that mine were good enough. And up to that point... In academia, always, I tried to hide behind the thoughts and the ideas of those that I thought were more intelligent than me. I'd done this many times in my classes. I had, I had this like feeling every time I would share something in class. When I would raise my hand to answer a question, I had this. My heart would beat beat very fast, and I would almost be out of breath when I would reply to. The question that the teacher had just posed, because i I thought people are going to laugh at me, people are going to notice that I don't belong in this institution. I had those thoughts constantly every time I would go to class. They never really went away, no matter how much praise I might have gotten or or co- or good comments I received on a paper or a final exam. I always had this lingering feeling of if only they knew who I really was, how I really think, how smart I really am. So this imposter syndrome really that's what it was, was this constant anxiety about being seen like a fraud, which I felt like I was and having that academic dishonesty occurrence really solidified that for me. So around this time I also realized that I couldn't use my degree that I'd worked for in the way that i had imagined. I had a degree in literature and international relations and th- I had pursued those fields because I had been told by professors that I was good at those things so I never truly stopped to think this is this something that I want to make a career out of and, and get a job in? I had just accepted that these were avenues that were good for me because somebody else considered them so. So I was working closely at the time through these careers with, with a professor on campus, and I did research with the professor, and, and I was hearing the stories of individuals that I would be conducting research on um, about poverty and, and migration, which was a very heavy focus for me in undergrad. And I would absolutely love talking, like not talking, I would absolutely love hearing those conversations that were documented about these individuals that were impacted by those issues directly. I would love reading about that, but I hated the process of detaching myself from their narratives and forming a judgment about their situation and trying to come up with um, proposals for how to improve their situation when... I wasn't going back to their direct narratives again. I was just hearing them once and bypassing them or, or just ignoring them altogether to figure out a result for the situation that could be proposed. That was kind of the core of the work that I was doing, and I felt very detached from the people, which I always wanted to be more connected to, but... You know, at the time, I was focusing more on having that satisfactory uh, research proposal and and really looking like I knew what I was talking about, even though I knew that there was a much deeper context to what I was researching that needed to be showcased, but that I couldn't because there was only a, a specific, like, superficial span that span that was being accepted by by professors and people looking in on your research so I realized at the time too after not knowing what to do with my degree once I graduated that I had always looked at being accepted into an elite school a privileged school as a marker of success and a marker of my identity being kept not actually understanding how this institution could be an avenue for continuing to build me as a person. I remember my mom saying once that it didn't really matter what school I got into because the student is the entity that builds a school and not the other way around. A school doesn't build you even though you can be very much helped by a school. It boils down to how you are using the resources and how you are shining for your effort. So I I think I didn't understand that at the time I was very much using having that physical marker of having been successful and getting accepted to this school, that I didn't understand how to use it really to grow me because I didn't know myself. I just did whatever others that I thought knew me believed I would succeed in. So at the time I was scrambling for what would be my next steps in my career and I couldn't use my degree in a way that could promise economic certainty as soon as I graduated. So I kind of pivoted at the time to what I knew that my passion had always been, which was education. I, I'd always been really passionate about it. And I applied to Teach for America, a program that you can enter and, and teach at, at high-need areas in in, Amer- in the United States, and... And have your own classroom and achieve a master's degree in education on the side. So it was was a really good opportunity and I got accepted, but I couldn't attend. Because around this time in my life, things completely shifted for me. And to find out what this shift was and the impact that it had on my life, tune in to part two of this episode. And let me tell you something, kind of like a spoiler. The reason why I'm so passionate to share the shift that happened and, and the way that it impacted me is because externally, what occurred seemed like the worst thing that could happen to a person. And you will see why in part two. But what ended up happening was even though there was a lot of suffering and pain associated with what occurred, it was something that needed to happen for my journey, and you will see why. And, and it deeply transformed my way of showing up for myself and for every other aspect of my life. So I cannot wait to talk to you on the next installment of this My Story segment. I'm so excited. Thank you for tuning in to the end of this episode. Take care. Bye. There is no right time to begin working on the parts of ourselves we may have neglected for the majority of our lives. If you're here, it is for a reason. I am so proud of you for asking the tough questions and delving into what comes of these. May you find the deepest healing and transformation on this path. Thank you.